have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open them please to the 33rd chapter of the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. On Sunday morning, we're in a sermon series entitled, Heaven's Helps for the Home. I don't have to tell you, you already know, the home in America is in trouble. The nuclear family has been nuked. It's one is hard-pressed to find a husband and wife who stay together all the days of their life. One is hard-pressed to find a, a mother and a father raising their children in one home all the days of their life. You just don't see that much anymore. Today, our message is a little different. Maybe you've never heard a message like this. Turning... Sibling rivalries into sibling reconciliations. Genesis chapter 33. And let's read beginning with verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came with 400 cavalrymen. And he divided the children he had unto Leah and to Rachel and unto his two handmaids. He put the handmaids and their children out front, Leah and her children in the middle, and Rachel and Joseph and the rest followed behind. And he passed over them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And we'll pause right there. Multiple children can lead to multiple challenges for parents. It might would be easy if we could just had one child, or if we had multiple children who were all just alike. But most of us desire more than one child, and those of us who have more than one child know that children are seldom alike. They can come from the same place and be 180 degrees different. Multiple children can lead to multiple challenges for parents. Why? Because children, little ones and big ones, can often be mean and cruel to one another. A little girl was asked to draw a picture of her little brother. You know what she drew? A devil. A little boy was asked to draw a picture of his big sister. And you know what he did? He drew a picture of her and then he put an X over, extra out. Children can be mean and cruel to each other, little ones and big ones. In his book, The Strong-Willed Child, Dr. James Dobson says of rival children these words. They're not content to be private in their dislike of their brothers or sisters. They publicly attack each other. Like miniature warriors, they argue, they hit, they kick, they scream, they take each other's toys, they taunt, they tattle, and they sabotage each other. 
because they believe that their brothers and sisters are their enemies. Now, I wish I could tell you that in the Bible, we don't see that. But you know, God is brutally honest with us. And the stories that are in the Bible are also brutally honest. God doesn't gloss over anything. And in the Bible, you will find there's a lot of sibling rivalries going on. You got Leah and Rachel, who we just read about. They were two sisters who were, were in, in many ways, rivals for the attention of Jacob. And then we think about the prodigal son and the stay-at-home son. You know, they didn't really like one another. And then there was Mary and Martha, the two sisters. Lazarus was their brother. You know, they never got along until Lazarus was resurrected by Jesus, and then they came together as a family. And what about Cinderella and her stepsisters? Oh, that's not a Bible story, is it? But they didn't get along either. What I'd like to do today is I'd like us to look at some sibling rivalries in the Bible. Five of them, in fact. And all we're going to do is just take a little snapshot of them. I'll make a few comments. And then we'll close out the message by speaking to those of us that are parents and grandparents about how we can be helpful in minimizing rivalry and maximizing reconciliation among our children and our grandchildren. So you listen, and I think you'll learn something. By the way, all of the messages that we do each and every Sunday are on our website. So if you don't want to have to take all these notes, because there's going to be a lot of principles given, you might just want to go to the website and get them off there at your own convenience. But let's do a little bit of thinking now. The very first sibling rivalry found in the Bible takes place in Genesis chapter 4. And that's the story of Cain and Abel. Now they were brothers. And they competed against one another in many ways. And we know that Cain in anger, Cain in rebellion, murdered his brother Abel. Can you imagine that? One brother murdered another. And then he took Abel's body that he slew, and he covered him up in the bushes. He hid him away, as if if you hide the body, you can hide the crime. And God came, as he normally did, to visit Cain and Abel. And God asked Cain, where is your brother Abel? And of course, Cain gave that sarcastic retort, am I my brother's keeper? Well, the answer is yes, we are our brother's keeper. And we as siblings are to be involved in our brothers' and sisters' lives. So what can we learn from Cain and Abel? Principle number one, Satan wants to divide our children. God wants to connect our children. Cain and Abel were divided, and it resulted in the murder of Abel. And Satan smiled. Satan loves division, but God wants children to be connected to one another. 
Not to split, but to stand together in whatever life will hold. So principle number one, parents and grandparents, is this. God wants our children to be connected to one another. Not alike, but connected. In Genesis chapter 5 through 9, secondly, we're introduced to three more siblings. They're all brothers. Their names are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. If you know your Bible, they are the sons of Noah. And they help their father build the ark. And by the way, that ark was a picture of Jesus. Okay? Never forget, everything in the New Testament has a picture of it in the Old Testament. And that ark was a picture of Jesus, but that's another sermon for another day. And so, Noah, Shem, Ham and Japheth, along with a few others, worked for over 100 years to build what would be a floating coffin called the ark. And you know, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I think we could assume that they worked together cooperatively. That, that there wasn't no criticism among them. There wasn't no competition among them. Noah was in charge, the sons knew it. The sons had specific tasks and they carried out their task and when they were through, they crossed over and they helped their brothers. What we get here is a picture of a team of builders. Not a bunch of lone rangers doing their own thing, but a team of builders working together under the same plan, toward the same goal, under the leadership of Noah, who was under the leadership of God. That brings us to a second principle. And the principle is this. Satan wants our children to be loners. God wants our children to be teammates. Satan wants our children to do their own thing. But God wants our children to be teammates. Working together as much as possible toward common goals under the umbrella of parents and grandparents and the Lord Himself. Number three, Genesis 19. In Genesis 19, we're introduced to some girls, Lot's daughters. Now, they don't have names as far as we know, but we do know these nameless daughters of Lot were very devious. They got their father intoxicated. And then they had sexual relationships with him. Not just one of them, but both of them did. And they seemingly encouraged each other to do so. And this copycat sin. Principle number three. Satan wants our children to tempt each other into sin. God wants our children to protect each other from sin. Satan wants siblings to push each other into hell. 
And God wants siblings to boost one another to heaven. Are you picking up that spiritual warfare is going on here? Satan has an agenda. God has truly bumping heads in the lives of our children and grandchildren. Number four, Jacob and Esau, who we're going to talk about a little bit more in detail toward the end of the message. But their story covers 11 chapters, Genesis 25 through 36. Now, these were twin boys. And you know, the Bible says their rivalry began in the womb. Jacob and Esau actually began wrestling in the womb. And they continued wrestling out of the womb. And... The the problem with Jacob and Esau was not only they had an intense rivalry that seemed to be natural and maybe supernaturally caused by forces that were taking place around them, but their mom and dad contributed to a lot of the problem because they played favorites. Jacob was a mama's boy, and she taught him to be a thinker. A schemer from the neck up. Use your head, son. You're a smart guy. And Jacob Esau was a father's boy. And his father taught him to use his strength. Esau was a man's man. I mean, he had big guns. And, and, and so his daddy taught him, he said, well, if you want to get your way in life, you've got to be... Strong from the neck down. You get muscles. Bully your way around. And so these two boys, one smart and the other strong, are continually battling each other their entire lives. Aided on by mom and dad in the corner of both of them cheering them. And this rivalry, this battle between the two, led Jacob to have to leave the home. Because Esau was going to kill him. Now, principle number four here is this. Satan wants our children to hurt each other and to hold grudges. But God wants our children to heal each other and forgive. Satan wants our children to exist in a state of warfare, and God wants our children to live in a state of peace. Again, let me note to you, spiritual warfare taking place. And then the fifth illustration, before we go to our principles, is found in Genesis 37 through 50. It's about Joseph and his brothers. Now, Joseph had 11 brothers, and they were extremely jealous of Joseph. The word I want to use is they despised him. Now, I don't want to put all the blame on Joseph's brothers because Joseph was a little brat too. He wasn't beyond him to remind his brothers, I'm daddy's favorite. I mean, he could be aggravating too. And... This rivalry between Joseph and his 11 brothers led those 11 brothers to come up with a plan to get rid of him. They threw Joseph in a hole. He was either going to die in the hole 
Or somebody would come along, maybe some slave traders, and they would find him, rescue him, and make him a slave and take him away. In any event, Joseph would be out of the picture. So his brothers did that to him, and then they left the father. They said, listen, we, don't know. We, we believe Joseph got ate by an animal. Of course, we know later that Joseph would become the second highest official in the Egyptian empire. Only under Pharaoh himself. And Joseph, once again, would have a chance to, to, to meet his brothers. There'd be a confrontation, and Joseph would forgive them. That's a, what a great story that is in and of itself. But uh, that brings us to principle number five. Satan wants to breed negativity into our children. God wants to place positivity into our children. Satan is always the negative. He's the dark. And God is always the positive and he's the light. Wouldn't this old world be better if folks we met would say, I know something good about you. I will treat you that way. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we just said positive things about one another and treated each other with that positiveness? Now, have you got those five principles? I'm going to give them to you one more time. Principle number one, God wants our children to connect. Okay? Principle number two, God wants our children to be teammates. Principle number three, God wants our children to protect each other from the dangers of sin. Principle number four, God wants our children to help and to heal one another and to forgive one another. And principle number five is God wants our children to be positive and how they, how they act toward each other. That's pretty simple stuff, isn't it? You say, Pastor, you didn't have to come, work long to come up with that, did you? No, I didn't have to work long to come up with that. That's just basic common sense. But you know, most of the Bible's basic common sense. The question is, how do we do this? Pastor, you're telling us what we probably already know. That's what God wants for our children. But how do we as parents and grandparents facilitate that happening? Expedite that happening? Ladies and gentlemen, parents and grandparents are so important because dysfunctional children who are rivals against one another, they don't just happen. They're usually the result of dysfunctional parents who allow it to happen. So let me give we who are parents and grandparents some basic principles that we can employ no matter where we're at in the journey of life, whether we got little children or big children, whether we got little grandchildren or big grandchildren, whether we have two or we got 20. What are some principles that we can put in place 
that our children might and grandchildren might grow up reconciled to one another, not rivals to one another. The first principle is we must teach them and demand of them respect. We must teach our children to respect one another. And we must demand that that respect be carried out. We as parents should not allow one child to belittle another child. We should not allow one child to bully another child. We need to establish boundaries for our children on how they talk and they act to one another. We need to teach them to respect privacy, respect each other's property. Children don't learn that accidentally. They learn it because it's taught to them and it's reinforced to them over and over and over again by parents and grandparents. You teach children and grandchildren, you teach them and you demand of them. You just don't say it, but you insist they do it. They respect one another. So, we do not play favorites. It's amazing when you look through the Bible stories how many godly men and women and parents chose one child over the other. You cannot play favorites with your children and grandchildren. We might be closer to one child than another, not pick one over the other, and we should not suggest in any way, shape, or form that we've done that. We do not play favorites. Thirdly, we do not make comparisons. It's okay, but don't brag on the child at the expense of another one. Why can't you do this, your brother? Why can't you do this like your sister? Your sister was this. Your brother was that. Why can't you be like them? What's wrong with you? Don't make comparisons. Every child is different except those differences. Fourthly, do not ignore good behavior. When children do something good, pat them on the back and hug them and let them know it. You know, sometimes we as parents, the only time we ever give a response to our children is when they do something wrong. So if they want our attention, what have they got to do? Wrong. Don't ignore good behavior. Make mention of it. Praise it. Promote it. Reward kindness. But number five is just the flip side of that. Do not ignore bad behavior. Cleaning children is work. That's why we see a lot of parents and grandparents not disciplining their children because they don't want the hassle, they don't want to put in the time. But the Bible says if you spare the rod, spare the discipline, you'll spoil the child. 
If you don't discipline a child, you're going to produce a spoiled brat. That's what the Bible's saying. You reward kindness. And you discipline badness. The Board of Education on the Seat of Learning gets a lot of children's... That's why God gave us a tail. You didn't know that, did you? Among other reasons, but that's a good spot. (laughs) Principle number six. Be fair to your children and grandchildren. I didn't say equal. I said be fair. I've got three sons. I can tell you right now, I don't treat them equally. I've got four grandchildren. I don't treat them equally. We try to meet them where they're at. We try to look at their situation, their circumstance, how they handle different things. And that determines what we can do and not do. If you have a respectable, responsible, righteous child, and they need some wheels, you'll give them a car, won't you? But if you have an irresponsible, disrespectful, wicked child, And they need some wheels. Well, I'll give them one too. A bicycle. You you have to meet children where they're at. God doesn't say we're to treat them equally. We need to treat them fairly. And if somebody's irresponsible, we can kill them by giving them something that would do them in. If you've got an irresponsible child who's involved in activities that are detrimental to their health and their life, and you will them $50,000, you're killing them. I talked to a lady just the other day about that. She's got three children, and we talked a little bit about that. I said, ma'am, if you give that, that one of your children who's blatantly irresponsible, if you give them a lump sum of money upon your passing, I'm telling you, you'll kill that child. I don't know if she appreciated it or not, but I felt I needed to say it to her. We, we have to be fair with our children, but not equal. Seventhly, point out your children's good traits. All of us are good at pointing out the bad things. Stop that. But we need to focus on some of the good things about a child. You know, Philippians 4.8 tells us that we ought to think about things that are true and noble and just and pure and lovely and of a good report. Because, you know, how you think affects how you talk and how you talk affects how you act. So we need to, to be not pickers of the bad, but promoters of the good in our children. Next time your grandchildren come over, you see your children, point out something good about them. Not just fuss at them about this or that. Principle number eight. If we want to have our children reconciled one day and not rivals all their life, we need need to spend equal time with all of our children one-on-one. Now there's a time for group activities, but there's also a time when you just get one son or daughter by themselves and you do something with just them. It gets you a chance to know them, 
to understand what they're thinking and they're feeling. It makes them feel special that you're spending that time with them and them alone. Schedule a date time, gentlemen, with your daughters and granddaughters. Moms, have a play time with your children. Have an eat out time. Take them to their favorite little place where they get to choose what they want to eat without their brothers and sisters being there. Make them feel special. Give them that one-on-one time and make sure that all of them get equal. Principle number nine. Schedule family time where everybody has to be together. Everybody needs their space and everybody needs one-on-one time, but there needs to be a time when everybody comes together. Those can be some of the richest moments in your family when everybody's together, cutting up and laughing and just having fun. Principle number 10. Pray for your children to be right and to do right. James says the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You remember when we were talking about those five illustrations, I kept telling you Satan has a plan and God has a plan and those plans are being worked out in our children and grandchildren. There is spiritual warfare going on for your children and grandchildren. Satan wants to do just the opposite of what God wants to do. And somehow, some way that I cannot explain to you, God has factored in the prayers of parents and grandparents on how he's going to enter into that prey. Remember, call upon the Lord. Remember that word call means it means invite. Lord, I've got two boys and they just at each other's throat. I, Lord, would you come in and begin a work in their lives? I'm telling you, that's powerful when parents and grandparents pray for their children and grandchildren to get along and to live right and to do right. You say, well, I've been praying for such for five years. Well, you keep praying. Sometimes God has to change us before he changes them. Principle number 11. We need to teach our children to own up to what they do. And not allow them to get by with things. We need to to teach them that if they do something wrong, they need to confess it. Not wait till they get caught, but to confess the wrong before they get caught. Confess it this way and confess it this way. And to acknowledge that what they did was wrong. Not only confess it, but to acknowledge it. I did wrong. And then to ask for forgiveness. And then to advance reconciliation or restitution if that's needed. You know where children learn that from? Us. I don't never say I'm sorry. Well, why should your sons or daughters ever say they're sorry? I don't never do anything wrong. I am Mr. Perfect. Well, why do you think they're ever going to say they're wrong? They're Mr. Perfect Jr. We have to make sure that we make them own up 
to what they say and do. No more, not as we talked last week, no blame. I did it. I was wrong. Please forgive me. And if I've done something that requires restitution, I'm willing to give it. And then lastly, the last principle is seek, actively seek reconciliation and unity in your family. You see, I'm aware that some of us have got a lot of years behind us. And we made some mistakes. And so, as we look back, we maybe we're thinking, well, I wish I'd have got this message 30 years ago. Well, it's never too late to start all over again. The God of heaven is a God of 10,000 second chances. This can be the first day of the rest of your life. God doesn't want us to be pity partiers and moan and groan for what we've done because I'm telling you, no matter what you've done, right or wrong, good or bad, God's grace and mercy can minister. And God has a way of transforming. He can take the bad and turn it to good. He can take the defeats and turn them to victory. He can take a division and make it a connection. He can take children and grandchildren that are, that are in each other's throats and He can change their lives where they're hugging each other's necks. Proverbs 17.1 says, Better is a piece of dry bread and a household of peace than a feast, a banquet, and a household of strife. As parents and grandparents, we need to be actively encouraging our children and grandchildren to reconcile with one another if they be on the out and to get along together with one another. Maybe some of our parents here today need to reconcile to some of our children. You say, Pastor, I'm 70 years old. My, my sons and daughters are 40. If you're not where you need to be with them, you need to take the initiative to be there. Reconciliation between parents and children. Reconciliation between children and parents. If you're here today and you're a child, of a mother, and that's all of us. For whatever reason, you don't get along with your parents. You need to make an effort to reconcile. Children to children. Maybe you're here today and you've got a brother and he's a no-count. Well, he might be a no-count, but you need to reconcile to him. You see, God is a God of reconciliation, and He wants unity. Unity here and unity here. And He wants us to take the initiative to do it. We can't just sit back on our haunches and say, well, if they come to me, I'll talk to them. No, we've got to be actively involved in that. Because He's actively involved in that, is He not? Aren't you glad God just didn't sit on His throne and cross His arms and say, Jim Palmer, if you want me, you come to me. I'd go to hell. There was nothing in me to do that. And there's nothing in you to do that. 
God takes the initiative. He's an initiative-taking God. And He wants us to be like Him. And where there's a breach, where there's a division, where there's a wrong, where there's a, a separation, He says to you and I, go and fix it. As much as you humanly can, go and fix it. And that brings us to Genesis 33. I could have just given you all this in the front end. We'd been done in 10 minutes. But then you'd complain to Keith. He's got enough to do other than listen to your complaints. So I said, well, I'll throw in a bunch of extra stuff. And... But I, I want us in Genesis 33. 33. Genesis 33. I want us to see how two brothers who were going to kill each other at one time, who have been separated for years, how they're going to be reconciled back together again. Now I want you to notice in Genesis 33 <clears throat> that the, the chapter preceding Genesis 33 is Genesis what? Help me at 32? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Genesis 32. You know what takes place in Genesis 32? Jacob. Remember Jacob's the mama's boy. He's the schemer. Boy, he's sharp. You don't want to mess with, with Jacob. He'll cheat you out of everything you got. He was smooth talker, smart thinker. And in Genesis 32, Jacob meets God. Now, he's always knew of God. And God has always been in and out of his life. But in Genesis 32, God wrestles with Jacob. The first wrestling match recorded in the Bible. The Lord versus Jacob. And it was fixed like all wrestling matches are. Because the Lord let Jacob do his thing. And when the Lord got tired of it, he touched Jacob's thigh and knocked it out of whack, out of joint. And Jacob would be crippled the rest of his life. But God taught something that day to Jacob. He not only saved his soul, he taught him submission. So in Genesis 32, Jacob has an encounter with God that changes his mind and heart toward his brother. You see, when you have an encounter with the Lord Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, it will change the way you think and feel about people. You say, well, my, I got saved and it didn't me. Well, you didn't get saved then. So in Genesis 32, Jacob goes, undergoes a transformation. He feels a burden that he needs to reach out to his brother Esau, who he hasn't seen for years, and the last time they saw each other, Esau was going to kill him. So Jacob makes a decision that he will go to Esau in verse 3. He rounds up all of his family. He puts part of his family up front. He puts part of his family in the middle. He puts his favorite family in the back. And Jacob leads the way, and he's got a herd of cattle, a herd of livestock. 
And he's going to give Esau a great herd of animals, which in that day was like gold and silver. The Bible says as they approach one another, Esau is coming not with his family and with herds, Esau's coming with 400 soldiers. So here's Jacob with his family, with his livestock, and here comes Esau with 400 warriors. Now Jacob's coming to reconcile. He doesn't have any idea what Esau's coming for. Esau might be coming for heads. But when Jacob sees Esau, the Bible says he runs ahead of his group. And notice it says in verse 3, look at, look at your Bible, verse 3. And he passed over them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. In that day when you bowed yourself to somebody, that was a sign of humiliation and meekness. What Jacob was doing, without ever saying a word, was, I'm sorry. I wronged you, and I know it. And I humble myself before you, and I ask for your grace and your mercy. You deserve to kill me. If you want to kill me, I deserve it. But I'm asking you to forgive me. It's Jacob's way of saying, I'm sorry, without ever saying the words. And Esau understood exactly what he was doing. And then it says that in verse 4, Esau ran to meet him and embraced his brother and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And that story has a happy ending. Together again with the brothers. You see, that's what God wants of us. He wants our children to be one. He wants parents and children to be one. He wants grandparents, children and grandchildren to be one. And if we're not one, ladies and gentlemen, He wants us to take the initiative to make it happen. Sometimes that just means we've got to take a good, strong dose of humility. Humility is like castor oil. Nobody likes to take it, but it works. And we need to take that dose of humility. We need to ask the apologies of those that have offended us, or maybe we've, we've offended them. We need to, to humble ourselves and be meek and seek reconciliation and unity. We need to ask God to soften them. We can do that, can't we? We can't change what's been done, but we can change what will be done. And we can turn our homes from fighting to peace, from factions to connections, from war to togetherness. It begins with you and I. And then picking up the principles that we've learned 
and start to employ them in the lives of our children and grandchildren as much as we can. One closing note. While Jacob and Esau loved one another again and were unified again, pay attention. I don't know if they ever trusted each other again. It takes a long time to build up trust, and trust can be lost very quickly, and it also takes a long time to rebuild trust. You, you love them. And you try to have unity and harmony, but you also understand maybe it's going to take a while for me to trust them again. Okay? You steal from me, I can forgive you. But I'm not trusting you. You understand the principle? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed.